You know, your life seems mundane, you don't do anything exciting, you've never been in the newspaper. Uh, you wonder if anything you do ever gets noticed. And you find yourself wondering, does anyone even know who I am? Do they know where I am? Uh, does anyone see me, or am I just some meaningless blip in the universe? Or again, perhaps we find ourselves feeling ins- insignificant uh, because of the way other people treat us. Uh, the things that have been done to us, uh, the things that we know are not right, but somehow we just get treated as if we are nothing. Or we feel insignificant because we know that we have done things that we're ashamed of. Or we feel that no one could love us or care about us or notice us because we're simply not worthy. As we wrestle with these ideas, sometimes we think about this as well in relation to God. And there are things that make us wonder if God would really see us. You know, the God of the universe, the God whose glory we cannot fathom, this wonderful, majestic God, would he take any notice of mere specks of dust on some random planet? Would God care about you and about me? Perhaps we feel like as we come to God, we're just too insignificant. Or maybe there are things that have happened to us that make us feel that surely God can't notice us. If he did, why would these things be happening? Or there are things that we've done and we know that we're sinful. God shouldn't notice me. I don't deserve it. And as we struggle with these thoughts, I think our passage, Genesis 16, brings an incredible encouragement an incredible assurance that there is a God who sees, a God who understands every part of our lives and who cares deeply for us, even when no one else does. As we look at this chapter, there's really uh, two big strands flowing through it. Uh, On the one hand, we have the story of Abram and Sarai, uh, an account of a failure of faith. Abram and Sarai are waiting for God's promise, and it seems like it's not happening in the way they thought. And they feel like maybe they need to give it a little bit of a helping hand. Now, God's not doing what he said he was doing. Surely he can't do it in his way, so we'll do it our way instead. And, of course, we see disaster that flows out of that. As Abram and Sarai's relationship is strained, as as terrible things happen to Hagar, as the descendants will be fighting for generations, we see that trying to achieve God's promises in our way uh, fails. It is his power that will bring his promises to fruition. Now, that's one of the threads in Genesis 16, uh, but it's not what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, this morning I want to look at the account of Hagar. And I want to see here specifically how God treats Hagar. And to begin with, it's worth starting with the simple question, well, who is Hagar? We first encounter her in verse 1, and we find that Hagar is Sarai's Egyptian servant. You know, some translations Uh, appropriately translate that slave. As we think about what it means for Hagar to be a servant, uh, it's not like the images that might come to mind of slavery in the modern world, boats going across to the Americas or anything like that. Uh, It's not even like a lot of slavery in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was a vast vast number of different ways people could be enslaved. You could be working in hard labour in the field, or you could have a fairly respected role in the household. And in the previous chapter, we find if Abram didn't have an heir, one of his servants was the heir of his whole household. And as we think about what it means for Hagar to be a slave or a servant, uh, she would have been an attendant of Sarai. 
Uh, she wasn't in chains, she wasn't out working in the field, she wouldn't have been slogging through hard labour. But even still, while not overplaying the hardship of her slavery, Hagar was a servant. She was not her own. She couldn't do what she wanted. She was owned by someone else. Uh, Hagar was required to do whatever her master said for her master, in this case for Sarai. And we read here as well that Hagar is not simply a servant, but she is an Egyptian servant. Uh, now they're living in Canaan. And that makes her a foreigner. She is a possession of her master in an unfamiliar land, uprooted from anything she had known, uh, cut off from anyone who might have looked out for her or protected her. She is powerless and completely dependent on her owner. And we see this really playing out in the account in this passage. In verse 3, Sarai gives Hagar to Abram to be his second wife as a kind of surrogate for Sarai to get a child. And we don't hear anything of Hagar's thoughts on the issue. Uh, Presumably, her thoughts weren't important. She was to do as she was told. So as we consider this question then, who is Hagar? The first thing we find is that she is a powerless foreign servant. Uh, But that's only the beginning of the picture. In some ways, Hagar's position seems to change as the account continues. When Hagar conceives, she goes from being an insignificant servant to now being the mother of Abram's child. And to grasp the significance of that, I consider what that would have meant for Abram. For years and years, he has been longing for a child. But he hasn't had one. And he's longing for a child because it's his future, it's his name, but more than that, Uh, This is how God's promises are coming to fruition. All of God's promises seemed to rest on a son, and now finally a child is conceived. A child who initially would have seemed like he was the fulfilment of all of those promises. And so it would have been an incredible joy for Abram and an incredible honour for Hagar. Uh, Perhaps not an honour she would have chosen for herself. Uh, Perhaps something she still resented. Uh, Who could blame her? I imagine she probably did resent it. But nonetheless, through the conception of this child, Hagar would have risen considerably in her status in the family. And now there's some reason that she is important. So as we answer this question, who is Hagar? Uh, She is a foreign servant, but now also the mother of Abram's only child. But the account continues, and we find more about Hagar. In her newfound importance, we read in verse 4 that Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. She despised Sarai. And of course, in one sense, this is the most understandable thing imaginable. Who wouldn't despise the woman who had treated you as property, uh, treated you as someone that they could even use to be a surrogate mother to a child? It's hard to blame Hagar for despising Sarai. But even still, I think it's worth pausing at this point. We need to see that Hagar is not perfect. Her actions may be understandable. I'm not saying any of us would act differently. But despising a fellow human being is never right. And up to this point in our account, Hagar has played no active role. Things have been done to her. She hasn't actually done anything. And so the first thing we read of Hagar doing 
is looking with contempt on Sarai. An understandable action, but a sinful one. So who is Hagar? She's a foreign servant who is the mother of Abram's only child, and she's a fallen, a fallen human. Uh, she has been gravely sinned against, but she is also a sinner. There's more to the picture as we continue. And Hagar's rise in status seems not to have been quite as significant as she was first thinking. And so in verses 5 and 6, Sarai complains about Hagar. And while we might have expected that now Hagar is important and she'll be protected from Sarai, it turns out not to be the case. Sarai is still the boss. Abram hands Hagar over to her, and Sarai mistreats Hagar. So who is Hagar? She is a mistreated woman at the mercy of an oppressive master. And still the account continues. In the end of verse 6, Hagar flees. She can't take this treatment, and she decides she'd be better off getting away, getting somewhere else, trying to find some kind of better life. And then in verse 7, we find that Hagar has ended up in the desert on the road to Shur. Now, this would be the direction back towards Egypt, and presumably Hagar's hoping somehow to make it through the wilderness, back to her homeland. But as we come to Hagar in verse 7, when God meets her, things are really not looking good for this woman. She is an insignificant servant, mistreated and powerless. She is a foreigner and now a fugitive, a pregnant woman with no help, no support, no friends, out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. As we build this picture up of who Hagar is, it's a pretty bleak one. And in fact, there's still a few more points before we complete this picture. As we consider Hagar's place in the broader account of the account of Abram and Sarai, we actually need to notice that Hagar is not the mother of the child who is the heir of the promise. Of course, Hagar doesn't know this yet. Abram doesn't know this yet. Sarah doesn't know this yet. But we need to see this. As God meets Hagar, God is not coming to this woman because somehow his promises hang on her. Our God knows that her child is not the heir. And God doesn't come looking for Hagar because she is some critical part of all of his purposes. She's not. In that sense, Hagar is no one special that the Lord should notice her. And in fact, we could go even further than that. Hagar is not just insignificant, but from one angle, you could say Hagar almost seems like a problem. While Hagar can hardly be blamed for the strife between Sarai and Abram, you know, that's their doing, that's Sarai coming up with hideous ideas and Abram following through on them. The blame there lies with Sarai and Abram, and yet Hagar has become something of a catalyst in this conflict. If all the promises still lie with Sarai and Abram, we might think, well, get Hagar out of the picture. She might cause more trouble. And again, as we consider this passage in light of the promises of God, we might think Hagar seems like a bit of an embarrassment. You could imagine if Abram and Sarah were politicians with a team of PR reps, they'd all be whispering in the corners, what do we do with this woman? Surely this is going to be embarrassing if it gets out. It shows a lack of faith. It shows failure. Can't we just get rid of her somehow? Perhaps to some people, Hagar fleeing would have seemed like a good thing. 
And we can quietly get rid of the problem, uh, quietly get rid of all this embarrassment and just press on with the promise as it was supposed to be. So who is Hagar then? A powerless, insignificant foreign servant, the mother of the child who is not the heir, a human being who is treated awfully and yet who is herself also a sinner, a fugitive alone and vulnerable, and someone we might almost think is an inconvenience or an embarrassment to the promises of God. We need to keep that picture in mind as we come to verse 7 then, and we see how God will treat this woman. How will God treat the one who in worldly terms seems not to matter? How will God treat the one that the rest of us think we could just as easily forget? How will God treat the one who might almost seem to be a problem in his plan? How will God treat Hagar, this woman in need? The first thing we read then is God comes to Hagar. Now look with me again at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now God didn't forget about Hagar. He didn't breathe some sigh of relief when she left the picture. He didn't even say, oh, you know, what a tragic pity. Now, how terrible it is that she had to go off there, but I guess that's how it is. On we go. We'll get on with the promise. No, God cared about Hagar. The angel of the Lord comes to her. And that's a big deal. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we see angels coming to people and we imagine that they were just running around all over the place in the Old Testament. Angels appearing left, right and centre. But if you actually look at the vast time period covered by the Old Testament, it seems that appearances of angels were actually pretty rare. There's a few exceptions, but generally, angels are only recorded at really significant monumental events. But here's this woman, a mere refugee in the desert. No one cares about her, but the angel of the Lord comes to her. And in fact, this point becomes even more incredible when we consider who the angel of the Lord is. You know, we read of angels in various places throughout the Bible, but this specific title, the angel of the Lord, only occurs a handful of times. And it's hard to tell whether this is an angel sent by the Lord or this is the Lord himself appearing in visible form. This morning's passage is the first time the phrase is actually used. And as you look at this passage... As the angel speaks, the Lord himself is speaking. Look at verse 10. The angel says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then look down to verse 13 where Hagar tells us how she understands her encounter. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Who spoke to Hagar? The Lord did. And not only is Hagar convinced that the Lord sees her and has spoken to her, but she says that she has seen the Lord. When this angel of the Lord appears, he speaks God's word and God is seen in him. Now, of course, people debate how exactly all of that fits together. Now, some people say this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, Uh, Others say that it's some way that God himself is taking on visible form. Uh, Some people, though, think it's it's not God himself, but it's an angel who is so closely associated with God that he speaks directly on God's behalf. To be honest, I don't know how it all fits. Uh, But 
however the details work out, what is really, really clear in this passage is that God hasn't just sent some petty minion to check on that random woman in the desert. Whoever this angel is, he is very important. And the Lord sends him and speaks through him and is there in him when he comes to Hagar. As the angel of the Lord comes, our God himself is meeting with Hagar. So we see here that in God's eyes, Hagar is not a nobody. She's not a mistake or an inconvenience or an embarrassment. God cares about her. When Hagar finds herself alone in the desert, our God is there. God is still with her. Our God is watching over her. And he loves her. As this encounter continues then, uh, the Lord speaks to Hagar. And what is immediately clear again is that he knows exactly who she is. He addresses her by name. In fact, more than that, he makes clear that he understands her situation. He calls out to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. We're not told what Hagar would have felt at that point. On the one hand, this is the title she is running away from. She does not want to be Hagar, servant of Sarai. But on the other hand, this title has no doubt defined so much of her life. That is who she has been. Sarai's servant. The one who belonged to someone else. The one who is not free. The one who has been mistreated. As the Lord speaks to her, he shows that he is not oblivious to any of that. He knows that she is Sarai's servant with all that entails. And then the Lord asks her a question. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, as you look at this question, it's clear God knows the answer. And God knows who Hagar is. He finds her in the desert. And it's not that he kind of stumbled across her and wondered, which way did you come from? Now, he finds her in the desert because he's seen every step she took to get there. But in this question, God invites Hagar to tell him. She's invited to speak to the Lord about what's going on. Where have you come from? What's been going on? Where are you going? What are your plans in all of this? And so think about God, sometimes we fall into a bit of a trap. We think if God doesn't understand me, then what's the point talking to him anyway? But if he does understand me, then surely he knows it all and I don't need to bother talking to him. But as the Lord comes to Hagar, it's clear that he both completely understands her and invites her to speak. He knows all things and he also listens as we come to him. You know, one of the reasons that we pray is that the Lord who knows us perfectly draws near to listen. Well, God invites Hagar to tell him what's happening, and she does. There's no hiding it. She's running away. She's had it with life under her mistress. And so what's God's response? Initially, it might seem rather shocking. God tells this runaway, mistreated slave to go back. Now look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. It's a very hard command. I return to your servitude. Return to where you're being mistreated. I submit. We might wonder how God could say such a thing. 
I think the first thing we need to be clear about as we look at this passage is God is not laying down a blanket rule here. He's not saying that anyone mistreated or enslaved should just put up with it and submit whatever happens. And this becomes really clear as we keep reading when we come to the Old Testament law. Uh, God will command his people to provide a safe haven for those in exactly the situation Hagar is in. In Deuteronomy 23, we read, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose, within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. The Bible doesn't condone any form of mistreatment, and nor does it give a blanket call just to put up with such. Obviously, in our own world, there are all kinds of issues. We don't have slavery in the same way, in Australia at least. There are all kinds of issues with abuse and wondering how to submit, how to deal with those who mistreat us. And those can be very complicated uh, to work out. What I did want to say is that we're not actually talking about that this morning. Uh, Hagar is a specific instance who in some ways goes against the normal rule for what happened with runaway slaves. And I guess while I'm not talking about abuse and such, I would also say if there are people who are struggling with that, um, have questions about that, please do talk to someone. You know, talk to people you trust. It is really difficult to navigate those situations and you need help and support around you. So if there's anyone here going through that, please do talk to someone, someone here at church that you trust or others who can help you in that. My point, though, this morning was simply that we can't take the account of Hagar and think, well, she submitted, I should just submit whatever happens to me. But having made that point, then, this is not a general principle. We still need to say, well, what is God doing in this specific instance? Why does God send Hagar back? I think it's worth reading a little more broadly and seeing what God says to Hagar, not just in that verse, but as he continues. So pick up again in verse 9, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Hagar's given a glimpse of what is to come. God is watching over Hagar. God has seen her misery, and he will nonetheless bless Hagar going forward. I think this point is really crucial to grasp. God is not simply blindly sending Hagar back, go back to Sarai, see what happens, see what comes of it. God assures her that he knows exactly what is happening, that he's with her, that he'll protect her, that he'll bless her. Of course, that doesn't guarantee all of Hagar's problems will vanish. In this description of Hagar's son, we find there's still going to be problems going on generations into the future. there will be incredible blessing for Hagar in the midst of all of that strife. But all Hagar needs to know here is that God is not sending her back in the dark. How God sends her back as one who sees her, cares for her, watches over her. 
in worldly terms, she returns just the way she left. She returns as a servant, a fugitive, a foreigner, a sinner, an embarrassment, whatever else you might want to say about her. In earthly terms, nothing has changed. But Hagar knows in the midst of that that the Lord is right there with her. The Lord has shown that he cares about her, even in those difficulties. And this really is the central point in the account of Hagar. We see it summed up in Hagar's final words in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The God of seeing. The God who looks after me, or literally the God who sees me. That's how Hagar understands God after this encounter. And this reality is declared again in the name of Hagar's son, Ishmael, God hears. And again in the name of the place where the Lord met with Hagar, Abir Roy, well of the one, uh, well of the living one who sees me. Uh, God hears, God sees, and he sees not just abstractly like he sees the universe. Hagar declares, God sees me. And God is no different today with each one of us. He sees you. He hears you. He cares about you. And maybe you can think of all kinds of reasons that God shouldn't be interested in you. Maybe you find yourself thinking, you know, I'm a nobody. I have no status. I don't seem to be achieving anything fantastic. I'm a blip in the universe and a dim one at that. Why would God care about me? The account of Hagar says God is the one who sees me. Maybe our life in this world has been hard and we've known pain and suffering. You don't know why it's all come to you. It seems that things just go terribly. And you wonder, how could God possibly be there in all of that? And yet in the account of Hagar, we are reminded the Lord does see. None of it's escaped his attention. He knows what's happening and he cares. Maybe we wonder if there are reasons that God would even want us to disappear. We're sinners. Of course, we might like to blame other things, blame our circumstances, blame whatever else. And those things played a part. But all of us know our hearts are far from spotless. And yet even still, God sees, not just to punish us, but to come to us. Perhaps we wonder if we're an inconvenience to God or an embarrassment to him. Again, we find God doesn't simply want us to drop off the face of the earth. His love endures still. He sees us and he comes to us. As we look at the account of Hagar then, we find a picture of a God who sees us. And that picture is fulfilled climactically in the coming of his son. It's incredible to see how Jesus treated people in need, our nobodies, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the outcasts of every stripe. Perhaps you're reminded particularly of the time Jesus met a woman at a well. In John chapter 4, the passage is too long to read at the moment, but we find this Samaritan woman. She's an outcast. She's a sinner. She's a nobody. And yet Jesus listens to her and shows her that he knows more about her than she ever could have imagined. 
And more than that, he shows that he is the one who can give her what she truly needs. He is the one who can give true life to those who trust in him. And for us this morning, it's easy to think of reasons God wouldn't care about us or shouldn't care about us. But he does. He cares about those who are hurting. He cares about those who fail. He cares about those in need. He cares enough that he sent his own son to this world, that Jesus would bear our sin upon the cross. The God who sees me in Genesis 16 is the God who saw my plight firsthand in the cross and who went to the depths that I will never have to experience because of his sacrifice. And that is how much God sees me. And that is how much he loves me. And so this morning, I look at the God who sees you. Know that he cares. Know that he is the one you can turn to. He is the one you can trust. He is the one who knows your need perfectly and who has provided for it, ultimately, in the cross. And we can trust him with all of our eternity and with every detail until then. And so this morning, let's pray our thanking God for this and asking that he would help us to do so. Father, we cannot fathom the wonders of your love. We cannot fathom the depths of your mercy and grace. We do not understand why you would notice us. And yet, Father, we rejoice that you do. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord, help us when we struggle, when we doubt. Help us to look again at the cross and to see just how committed you are to us. And Lord, help us to cry out to you as the only Saviour and the perfect Saviour. And we rejoice that you are such. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.